Yeah, you're gonna get some bonehead questions from me, certainly. Hey, there are so no stupid prepared. questions, only stupid people. That's you know? right. That's what mom told me, and I think that's a good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's gonna be in the podcast. <laughs> okay, Brent, we're good to go. Take us off. Cool. All right, I just want to make sure we are on episode twenty-six, right? Is That's that correct. a true statement? Yeah, I mean, okay. you, you've only screwed it up once, so we won't we won't remind you of that. Yeah, counting is not my thing. But uh, okay, cool. Let's kick it off this morning. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you listen to this, everyone, welcome to the hot aisle. My name is Brent Piotti, and with me I have Brian Carpenter. Woohoo! Good. Hey, what's going on, Brian? I'm yeah, I'm excited. It's a new year. It's been a little while. We kind of took a. We took an unintentional break uh, a little bit because I was out of commission, a little bit because of the holidays, and frankly, a little bit because uh, it was the end of the year and it was really hard to get people to uh, sit down and, and get on. But we have, we have a we already have a huge 2016 lined up. Uh, if this was a check, I wouldn't even have screwed up my first check and had to rewrite it with a, a different year. So uh, huge 2016 lined up, and we're starting right here with. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about today's guest. So let's get this going. Yeah, definitely. So this is episode 26. We're getting back into the swing of things. So the goal of the show today is to educate you again on the world of NoSQL, but specifically we want to dig into Apache Cassandra. Um, And even more specifically, we want to understand the difference between that and Datastax Cassandra and also understand the real-world applications of this database. So what are people doing with it? How is it impacting their business? So with us today, we've got none other than Patrick McFadden of Datastacks, and uh, he's going to fill us in on all the ooey-gooey details of Datastacks and Apache Cassandra. Patrick, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Um, yeah, well, that was quite an intro. I'm ready to go now. You're getting me all excited about talking the new year, Apache Cassandra. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do you know, it. It's one of the things that we were looking when we found you and kind of, you know, it's like, your pure enthusiasm on you know on Twitter from presentations things like that. Um, I already feel like we're best friends because you. I mean, just all the things I've seen, it's really exciting. You remind, you remind me a lot of my all my really good friends, and especially with all that passion. So bring it. Well, I mean, it's, it's not fake. I mean, I, I I do get paid by this company called Datastax, but I, I would do. I did this before I worked at Datastax, so they just found me and said, "Hey, can you just push this in a certain direction?" Sure. <laughs> So they just put their T-shirt on you and, and let you go. Funny enough, I was actually wearing their T-shirt when they hired me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe that was a premonition. I don't know. Yeah, anybody looking for a new job, go get the T-shirt of the company you're you're wanting to work for, and go do a presentation at a conference or something where they're at. And, exactly. And that's how it works. So <laughs> no, step one. Yeah. Step one. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not how it works anymore. But it, it is true that I mean I. There is a lot of practitioners that I run into, and that and that's my background. As you know, I'm not a marketing person. I'm not um, someone who's been in infrastructure, software sales. I I've been running infrastructure for 20 years now, so this is a completely different gig for me, really. So perfect. That's a great segue, then, Patrick. So first of all, let's uh, let's talk about what your current role is, and then we'll talk about kind of. What got you there, right? Because you've got a pretty long history in IT in general. Long history. Oh, someone's been lurking on my on my LinkedIn. Okay, we, yeah. we like to call it stalking, but go ahead. Stalking. I, you know, stalking is pretty extreme. That that involves law enforcement. Let's not go there. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I said I, I have been doing this for. I, I hate saying twenty years. It makes me old. But 
I've been doing this for a long time, <laughs> and it's just been in building stuff. I am very excited to build things, and that's that's why I'm an engineer. That's why I got into engineering, and so I I started out really in um, the software field, doing <laughs> doing work in dot coms, and I worked at universities. Just started out really with the internet, so I started on this internet journey thing in 1993. Um, when everyone thought it was kind of a fad, so I feel like I've, I've my career has grown up inside the internet and what it is. So that just looking at that as a history thing, that's just amazing. I mean, I took a bet on this thing called the internet because I, I thought it was pretty cool. And wow, look, it's like completely dominated our lives now. We don't even talk about the internet anymore. We just talk about the network, the net. Oh, I saw that on the web. Saw that on Twitter. On the line. On the lines. Yeah. So. Um, how did I get here is, is kind of interesting because I was working at a company called Hobson's and I was a chief architect there and my job was to solve big problems because we, we ran education software. Um, it was a software as a service for uh, most of the United States and, and the world. And so like most of the, what I tell people, most of the college applications, U.S. college applications came through us. So that, that's a big Deal. I mean, that, and not just from an infrastructure load perspective, but also a pretty heavy burden. You do not want to screw people's lives up, and we took that really seriously. Is you know, the, going to university is a major milestone in your life, and you do not want to be in the front in the way of that. So um, we we like I said, we took that very seriously, and part of that was making sure they had the best experience. And as college students tend to do, they. They wind up waiting to the last second for everything. So a lot of my life was around capacity planning, web performance, making sure things ran at the worst possible moment, like uh, you know, five Ivy League colleges all releasing their decision at the same time on the same day. Here comes 70,000 students all clicking, did I get in at the same time? <laughs> Solve that problem, right? So that that's my background and in just the scope of things and along that way you know I was an Oracle DBA and that was the choice that was what I used because that was the best choice and we we as a as an industry this people are trying to make the web scale um, and this is when companies like Facebook were getting bigger Google were getting bigger LinkedIn was getting bigger we were all working together at trying to solve this problem of making the web work and faster and not giving the fail well. Do you guys remember the fail well? I do. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> that happened. I think a lot of people don't know remember the fail well anymore. The Twitter was down more than it was up, which was a funny thing. <laughs> um, and so I started looking at alternatives because I wrote a blog post. It is gone. I got to find it. But it, it was a long time ago. And it was, dude, I hate to tell you, but the database is the bottleneck. And it was really just an open letter to everybody. Like we just need to admit this to ourselves. You know, we're, we're deploying massive amounts of web servers, app servers, caching tiers, all sorts of things, and we have one database. And the best chance you got is installing the biggest box you can possibly buy, or it'll fail and drag in next year. Or you had to buy two of the biggest boxes and have one of them sit there and basically do nothing. Pretty much hoping yeah. that the other one failed so that it could get a chance to get in the game. Yeah, can I play? Can I can we put me in coach? No, <laughs> all right, <laughs> and yeah, then you get into these exotic schemes really quickly, like sharding and things. So it, it, it started things started getting stupid pretty fast, and it wasn't very computer sciencey. 
and I, I, I appreciate computer science. I am a computer science scientist, and so that's when you, you hear the NoSQL movement really started around that. 2006, 2007 is when everybody um, that was trying to solve these problems started looking elsewhere, and that's where you saw companies like Google releasing papers and it's like, oh, hey, we, we do things completely different, and this is how we do it. Um, and along that time came the Dynamo paper, uh, which I think changed everything, really. Um, we will look back on that, as a, I'm sure people do now, as an epoch moment. This is when everything changed, right here. And the Dynamo paper was, from, of course, from Amazon, and they were talking specifically to people that were having the same problem. How do you scale a database, make it reliable, make it consistent, and um, keep it across multiple, multiple data centers? Um, which was kind of the holy grail. Yeah, how do you do that? And they did a very elegant job of explaining how to do it. And um, it was based on computer science. It wasn't just a wild idea. It was, it was cited and very research-rich, good stuff, right? And at that point, you saw a lot of databases exploding. That's when I started getting involved with Apache Cassandra, which was an implementation of that. And it was just something that I picked up because I said, this, is, this fits what I want to try to do, and it also has a really good data model. I like that. But there were others in there, too, um, like React, Voldemort, for instance. Uh, that's a long-winded answer, I know. But no, no, that's I, good. I, no, it's good. It, it kind of you know builds it builds the foundation, the credibility for our listeners listeners as well. So, uh, moving on to to today, you're the chief evangelist for right. Apache Cassandra at DataStacks. So, tell us kind of. I, I think the name or implies a lot, but uh, what do you, what do you really do? Well, so I st when I started DataStacks three plus years ago, I started out as a solution architect. Um, I wanted to help people install, run, work with. Apache Cassandra because I thought it was really interesting. I'd made it work where I work, and I thought this was a, real, a worthwhile effort. And as I'm doing that, I'm talking more and more about things like data modeling, about operations, about just how this works. And I'm getting invited to a lot of talks, and my YouTube videos are getting very popular. And uh, my boss, um, Billy, who's our CEO, said, you know, I think this is a really important role for the community to have a voice like this out there and I, I, w I want you to I want you to do this full time so that's uh, um, that's how I transitioned into um, being the chief evangelist for Apache Cassandra and, and I hired a team of people with me um, and all engineers very passionate engineers um, about this topic and about infrastructure so that it and it shows uh, this is what I like about it is it shows DataStack's um, commitment to the community because really we are we are community members and that's what we drive quite a bit. That's a great point. I think it's actually a great segue too into uh, a segment that we do uh, every every well every week typically, but uh, it's called this week in tech history. And I think community is a is a, is a great segue because we're trying to build that right. I mean we're trying to educate all of our listeners, um, and that can be anybody within EMC, outside EMC, and and everything. But um, at the end of the day, it, it is about community, and we all solicit feedback and want to, to help each other out. So along that line, um, this week in tech history on 11 January 2001, the podcast is technically born. So a guy by the name of Dave Weiner added the enclosure tag functionality to the RSS. Um, so basically you could pass audio or video files along with PDFs and EPUBs to the syndicated feed. So um, before podcasting, uh, 
well, before it was, I guess, coined podcasting, it was called audio blogging. Uh, and then in February of 2004, um, it was actually uh, coined podcasting by a journalist from The Guardian named Ben Hammersley. So uh, along with that, Patrick, I've seen your name out there as, as having done podcasts in the past. Um, obviously, today we're doing one on the hot aisle, but um, what else have you done in the past regarding podcasting? Podcasting. Well, I wasn't there in 2001, that's for sure. Um, and wasn't there like Adam Curry from MTV? Didn't he have yeah. some? Yeah, he had something to do with that too, which I think is really cool, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I recognize the name and, and I was like, I looked him up on, on Wikipedia and I'm like, oh, geez, I used to watch that guy on MTV all the time. And he has amazing hair. I love that hair. <laughs> he still does. He's still oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's the hair guy from MTV, and he's also a, a, he writes code, which I I thought was he just instantly made him much cooler. Um, wow. <clears throat> yeah, he actually wrote a podcast, the first podcast client, I think, something like that. Anyway, it was um, uh, iPod or X, I think, was the name of it. Yeah, he wrote code and, and deployed it in production. Good on you. Um, so, what other podcasts have I been on? Um, I've been on a few. Um, All things to do, um, which is a good one, and then F five. I, I did quite a few F five podcasts um, in the mid two thousands because I, being a part of infrastructure and and web performance, F five did a lot of that. And so, and that was back in the day. If you're doing web, you have an F five, right? <laughs> and you should, still should. Um, I'm trying to think of any more. I did a few interviews at, at trade shows, and that's – I can't remember. Is it bad that I lose track of that? <laughs> nah, yeah. when, you, when you talk to that many people, it's pretty difficult to keep track of it pretty easily. So did you – I did find um, – when I did a search for it, I found something with Pivotal, uh, which I thought was interesting. So did you – have you – it was either an interview or an audio interview with Pivotal. Do you remember that? Um, yeah, that was – yes, I do remember that. And – so Pivotal, all right, so Pivotal does a lot of informational stuff. You know, they they're do they do a lot of developer stuff, and so I think we were talking. If I recall, we were talking about just that a development topic. Yeah. So I mean, it's pretty interesting considering uh, you know where where Pivotal is today with, with with us, and were they already part of VMware at the time that you guys did that, or was it earlier than that? I think it was it was before it was before um, the acquisition. So yeah. Awesome. Well, let's get, I mean, let's get into it. There's a, I mean, obviously we appreciate you joining our podcast and thanks to Dave and, and everybody else and Adam Curry who paved the way. Thanks, um, Adam. But, uh, you know, as we, as we go forward, we look at all this stuff, um, you know, tell us, uh, we understand, right? I mean, Apache, Cassandra, you know, the story of Facebook essentially developing it and giving it to the world. Again, that whole open source, you know, here's everything that we did and what we learned and, you know, let's do this together. Um, it being folded into the Apache Foundation as a full project was that a was that a long term thing or how quickly did that evolve? Um, and then from there, where did uh, you know DataStax decide to become uh, kind of part of that ecosystem in creating a I guess a supported commercial type experience with it? So explain kind of explain that whole thing. So yeah, you got the first part, um, which is is really that's the kind of an interesting beginning. Because um, Avinash and Prashant from Amazon, who were part of the original Dynamo paper, went to work at Facebook, and they wanted to implement Dynamo. They wanted to try that, and then, then uh, for a problem that they were trying to solve at Facebook, and then they added Bigtable data model to the Dynamo distribution model. So they combined those two things, and that's where Apache Cassandra comes in, and that was in 2008. Um, 
at the time, you know, it was just a Facebook project, and they were trying to work on, you know, they were trying to develop that when Facebook was developing a lot of different technology. And is what's unique about it. It's the only project from Facebook that has ever been top leveled at Apache. So <clears throat> that that happened in 2010 um, on my birthday, February 17th, and. So when that that uniqueness of it is is first notable, but as many open source projects go, it started out pretty slow. I mean, from 2008 to 2010, it grew slowly, but <clears throat> it it would took someone from uh, from the community to really take a f fine you know like a fine uh, focus on making it successful to really take uh, let it take off, and that was Jonathan Ellis. Um, who's the chair for the project and who also co-founded DataStacks. Um, he, he was one in the community that says, I'm going to focus a lot of my time on making this successful. And that's about any open source project. Um, you can have a lot of people working on it, but when someone really takes an interest in the leadership and moving it forward, then that's when an open source project really can take off. And even more important, uh, Jonathan and um, another guy, Matt File, who quit, they both quit their job at Rackspace to do a company, and they at the time it was called Riptano. That's another thing about open source is when you see someone quit their day job and do it full time, that makes it much more serious. <laughs> you know, they have some motivation there. So those two guys left Rackspace to create a company called Riptano, which eventually became DataStacks, and that's when you really see. Apache Cassandra moving up. Um, that's is it started to uh, make a lot of traction in infrastructure, and along the way, DataStacks of course tracked along with it because it was uh, this started out as DataStacks is just a support company and consulting and training, and eventually moved to doing uh, products around Apache Cassandra. So you have product. So uh, maybe that's and that's where you know my learning needs to come out. You do you not? Do you guys have a fully supported version of Cassandra, or do you simply put products and support around it? So Apache Cassandra, the open source project, it, it is independent. So DataStacks does not own it, right? That's an Apache project. And data, what DataStacks has done is is taken the Apache Cassandra. We we certify a certain version for support, but we add extensions and tooling around it. So for instance, Apache Cassandra by itself is useful for transactional workloads, but it's not especially good for doing things like exploratory analytics or full analytics. And so we add uh, Apache Solar um, and we add Apache Spark um, and we have a connector to Hadoop as well, which isn't as popular but because it's Hadoop. But um, we add these components, plus we have this product called OpCenter, which allows you to manage it. We add some extensions to Cassandra itself, like a slow query log and um, ways to manage it. So we, we take the base and then we build off of it. And then that's a licensed product, it's DataStacks Enterprise. And what we really want this to turn into for the end developer is something that's useful when they're building applications. Like you, you can use Apache Cassandra for a lot of things, but you're probably going to use other things as well. We want to provide you with a suite of tools and product that you can build a really cool application with. Okay, and since we're, I mean, since we're here for kind of all things Cassandra, let's um, break down a minute, kind of really what it's all about. We want to talk about, you know, kind of what it is, what's driving it, why it matters. 
Um, and then we'll get into things like the ecosystem and competitors and, you know, where it's, you know, where it's trajectory is headed and things like that as well. So, uh, first and foremost, um, it is a NoSQL database. Mm-hmm. What is it about it that says this thing's different? Why do people care? Uh, why is my customer I talked to yesterday telling me all about how he's deploying Cassandra? Well, that, that was all right. So if you look at the history where it came from, it's, it's addressing a problem that we as an industry created, right? Um, everyone using mobile apps and <laughs> things like that. My, my mom is on the web and on the mobile apps. Come on. <laughs> Everybody's on this thing. I mean, what does Facebook have, a billion users now or something? So there's this massive scale problem out there. And the traditional solutions that were there for 30 years, didn't. they were like square peg. So Cassandra is a, a newer generation database for the newer problems we've created. And what makes it cool are a couple of really key things. First is it's the way that it replicates. It's very elegant in the way that it replicates. Um, that's difficult to do in, say, a, a relational database. And especially when it comes to cross data center. Very easy to set up cross data center replication. So when you're looking at maximum uptime, you can't be in one data center. You have to be in multiple data centers for maximum uptime, and that so that's one of the critical first features, and that's really probably the first class of Cassandra is replication. The second thing is the way that it scales, and as I mentioned before, you know when you you, you said like we'll buy a we'll buy a big box for a relational database or, or a second one that just sits there idle. Well, that's great until you run out of box. Right? <laughs> hey, um, there's no more CPU, no more magic, we're out. So now what? <laughs> so a good answer is add more machines and no downtime. So that's what Cassandra does. Is it's, it, you, know, you hear the, the words linear scaling. Well, that, what that means is that as you add more machines, it, it adds more capacity. So if you have one machine, you, you add a second, now you have twice as much capacity. If you double that, now you have four times as much capacity. So, and it's it tracks pretty well. We've proven over and over again. So from from an infrastructure panic standpoint, <laughs> you know you don't have to get into your busy season and then freak out because you ran out of box. Um, just add more, and that that I think that's those are two of the most critical features of what Cassandra can bring. And in terms of uh, the database itself, is this an in-memory database or is this kind of standard sits on disk? Whether it's persisted on a on a SAN or in direct attached storage, it is 100% persisted. Um, you you can turn off persistence, but I don't recommend that um, because it, it's a database of record, and that's what what we prefer is that you consider this a database of record, a transactional database. Um, so it does persist to disk, and that that's a really critical feature. Um, not on a SAN, unfortunately, <laughs> because it is a really low latency. The latency and the throughput requirements um, make it pretty impractical for a SAN, and so direct attach is really the way to go. I thought I read something about Datastax offering uh, an in-memory kind of module, if you will, for Apache Cassandra. It's a component, um, so what we do know that there is need for that. So in-memory equals fast, and that's and that's an important feature for some some workloads. So what we do is we have a component, Datastax has a component that allows you to take one table and make it strictly in memory. So you get a mixed, like a mixed model. Um, you can do a fully persisted database and also have a table of in memory for those for those workloads that require it. 
And as you as you mentioned earlier about Spark, uh, and we can kind of get to this a little bit more in a second, but is that also something you're leveraging where you can say, you know, push multiple tables up or push a section of, of workload up into Spark, which is all, you know, generally considered to be in memory? Or is that another thing you guys are leveraging to make that scale further? Well, it's not it's not a push up. It's This is what's fascinating about our Spark integration is that it has actually using data in a Cassandra table as it sits on disk. And so that's the data source. Now, of course, Spark, when it operates, the RDDs are created. That's the component. That's the atom of work inside of Spark. When an RDD is created, that is in memory, but it's a representation of what's in the table, which is, again, persistent on disk. So uh, if you were using Spark with, say, HDFS, that would be the data source, or Spark with S3, that would be the data source. Uh Um, Yeah, so... Cassandra with Spark, Spark is now using Cassandra as the data source. So thinking about it from a mixed, like like you were saying, a workload standpoint, if your transactional data is coming into Cassandra super fast and it manages that really well, you can do the analytics in place. You can do massive analytics, terabytes, petabytes of data um, on Cassandra without having to ETL it or uh, you know move it around. So, and you know, when we talk about this, this space as a whole, right, and you're talking about these massive analytics, extremely large databases, the problem with monolithics, um, when you talk about like the, the Gartner quadrant, right, and the uh, relational database uh, quadrant for Gartner, you guys show up in the, in the top right in the leaders now, right? So, um, yeah, we in do. Your, in your, Did that in, happen? <laughs> yeah. October 2015, you know, data stacks is right up there. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, it, I was proud to see Redis up there. Uh, it's, you know, really interesting to see data stacks and Cassandra Redis, uh, Mongo is up there, Amazon web services, which I assume they're really talking about dynamo. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the old guys, right? The big monolithic guys, right? The, the Oracle's, the Microsoft's, the IBM's, um, right. and you know, obviously that's where you're gunning and you know, what is it that they, you know, they, they seem scared or maybe they don't, maybe they not, they're not scared enough, but what is, what's going on there and what's, what's going to happen to them over the next couple of years, in your opinion? Scared. I don't, I don't know if, if, a, if a vendor that big, I, it can be scared. I think that they are always going to be concerned about who's nipping at their heels. Um, but, you know, Oracle, Oracle has got a massive, I think they do something like $9 billion a quarter in database sales still. You know, it's just an enormous amount of money still. So they're they're not dying. Nope, they're they're not dying yet. And I, um, the latest DB Engines poll showed that uh, Oracle is still the number one database um, out there, which which makes sense. You know, they've been around for a long time. Um, but that doesn't. And like you, to your point, the number two and three was Mongo and Cassandra. So it's coming up fast and. It, it, it's the always the incumbent, you know. I when I worked at a university uh, in the nineties, nineteen nineties, we still had an IBM mainframe. I never used it, but we sure had one. <laughs> so, you know, and that that happened, you know, because it's hard to steer the ship away from large infrastructure like that, especially when you have an, a very entrenched incumbent. But what you'll see in in the community at large and what's happening now. You know, Facebook doesn't use Oracle. Google doesn't use Oracle. Airbnb does not use Oracle. Um, these new companies are not using these uh, the older databases. So that's that's probably where they're the most concerned is they're not being invited to that party. 
do you see, do you see, I mean, again, a lot of people who are still consuming Microsoft and Oracle uh, and things like that, the IBMs of the world, um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's entrenched over time, like you mentioned. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's a heavy lift to move out of those databases and the, the cost to move out might be more than just paying, you know, the next couple of years maintenance or whatever. Um, do you see people going, okay, we're going to pull data out, you know, we're going to pull, do everything new on, you know, this one or another problem. Um, and then, you know, simply say, Hey, uh, we're going to put everything new in here. And then we're going to keep Oracle for those things that we just can't replatform right now, um, where their footprint is still there, but it might be shrinking, uh, just like their lead in the industry. They may have a lead, but is the percentage the same as it used to be two and three years ago? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting problem. I mean, that this is where we get into the speculation and fun, right? Um, I, the, the lead is always going to be in the, the, where the money is, right? And that, those are enterprises, large enterprises. Um, a, there, there's only one Facebook, right? <laughs> there's, not, there's not 100. There's not a Fortune 100 of Facebooks. Um, but this is what's, I think this is what's fascinating. Last year at the Cassandra Summit, um, the the names that were there were not just the new up and coming start startups the the dot coms the the new economy it was a lot of the older guard um, we had presentations from companies like Walmart and Macy's and Target um, these are companies that have been around for a long time the traditional brick and mortar if you will but they have competitors too you know they're competing against Amazon. And Amazon is moving the, the ball forward fast, and they have to compete in that world. And when, if they want to be competitive, they have to play on the same field. And using the incumbent technology just doesn't get the job done. They need to scale. They need to stay online. They need to be ready. Black Friday happens to everybody. And you can't just sit around and watch the incumbent try to figure it out. You've got to move forward. So let's talk about... So you, you brought up some good, some great kind of uh, uh, enterprise traditional companies using Cassandra. We've also on the on the Apache Cassandra website. You know, we've all the kind of dot coms, right? The Ebay's, GitHub's, go uh, the Netflix, the Reddit's, the Hulu's. Right. Apple's got a humongous, according to their website, the largest in the world. Um, yeah, they Cassandra. Had a is yeah, <laughs> 75,000, 100,000, 10 pet petabytes of data. Is anything they do not the largest in the world? I think they used to have the largest VMware <laughs> cluster in the world. Now they probably have the largest uh, Kubernetes cluster besides Google. You know, so Yeah, uh, I'm looking at my desk and it's littered with Apple products. I wonder why they're doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you know, to that, you talked about performance earlier on. Uh, they, they touted Netflix with a 2,500-node cluster, 420 terabytes, uh, servicing one trillion—is that right? One trillion requests a day—that's insane. Probably more than that, but yeah. Well, <laughs> so this just happened. Here's here's a another epoch moment, guys. Is that they just announced as global network uh, Netflix everywhere their global service. 135 countries now you can get Netflix. I like the 21st century. This is working for me. Um, it, yeah, that's great. I, yeah. So I um, I noticed you were in the in the Navy for a number of years as well. So. I'll just uh, drop my military service as well. But uh, I spent three years in Afghanistan, and I kept my Netflix um, subscription only to find out that I could not watch it. You I can now. 
So you you can go back on tour if you'd like, and you can watch <laughs> Netflix in Afghanistan. Um, I'm not sure if it's worth that, but <laughs> yeah, that and that's yeah that that's a huge infrastructure problem, right? I mean, I don't think there was and probably more of a logistics problem of getting network into Afghanistan, but that that was a that happened at Netflix for a reason because they're being competitive at a global scale, and they use Apache Cassandra. Um, they they work with data stacks. Um, they are thinking of the future, and to do that, they need to be ready to scale. You don't just flip the switch on and say, "Come on, world, come on in," and uh, not have a plan. And they do. And they're also fully distributed. I mean, they're in a lot of data centers around the world, and you can't just be in one data center anymore. Um, they're in the middle. They're in. I think they're in Singapore and Tokyo. They're, they talk about like all the data centers they're in. Um, they have to be, but how do you get your data distributed like that? Well, it's not with the incumbents, and Netflix stock reflects how agile they are, um, and they'll continue to be that way. I love my Netflix. I know that. Yeah. Well, I think you know, so. I think we can appreciate where Cassandra fits in um, regarding cloud native applications. You know, companies born in the cloud. You brought up things like Walmart and Macy's. Are they using those for cloud-native type applications, or are they gearing those towards kind of their traditional monolithic stacks that, that they have today? Um, I, they didn't really go into details. Well, the Target went into some detail. They use it to, uh, for their web-native uh, product catalog stuff and, and what's, what's happening on the front end, more or less. So if you think about e-commerce as, as really where the money is flowing the fastest um, for them, then and probably the worst problems, brick and mortar can manage scale problems. <clears throat> you can only put so many people through the line. Uh, you can't control how many people are going to click buy it now. And so Target talks a lot about that. Um, Walmart has not gotten into specifics about what they're doing. Um, I wish they would, um, but you can be sure that it has something to do with e-commerce because they they have a competitor. Walmart's competitor is. Amazon, as is most people's competitor. <laughs> is it yours? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah, and, and speaking of uh, unlikely competitors, or like you know, you tend to be, you sound a little bit like frenemies with Amazon, right? You do a lot of work with them and take customers there where necessary, and even uh, deploy Cassandra there, maybe instead of uh, Dynamo if possible, or whatever makes sense. Um, what about when Apple, being a huge Cassandra um, consumer? Uh, picked up Foundation DB. Does that does that look like they're going? Hey, I, I have a problem that even Cassandra can't do, or do they have a problem that's completely separate where Foundation works and nothing else works? Or you know, how does that how does that look to you guys? Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, Foundation solved a very different problem. It was a, it's a CP database, so a very different set of issues there. Um, but I they're a large enough company where they can acquire. They can acquire a company for just one problem. Um, and they wanted, what was the the number that they it was like ten million, fifteen million, something like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, it was an aqua hire, right? They literally uh, bought the company, shut down the open source project, stopped selling the product, and said, "You guys all develop uh, what it, maybe they're continuing to develop foundation, or you, they're developing for whatever it is Apple's using it for." It, it was never an open source project. So it was just an out. It was just an outward product. It was a yeah. It was a it was a closed source project. They had okay. a lot of open source projects around it, but if I if I recall correctly, it was never an open source project. It was a it was a proprietary database. Um, 
whether or not it's an AccuHire or they just wanted what that database did and it solved a problem and they wanted to take it a certain direction. Um, Apple has a lot of money. You know, they, where they have like $100 billion in reserve. Um, a, small, a small acquisition like that, they could do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and speaking of specific use cases, right? So you said foundation really hit a target that maybe only it solves. When I, when I compare Cassandra to what I know about Mongo, um, and maybe you can teach me some things, it seems like, although they're similar, uh, and they seem to fit in the same categories and talk in the same conversations, they actually seem to be very different. And what I understand about Mongo is it's really, really good at, I mean, like almost like storing files inside of the database, somewhat like a NoSQL object you know, pr product. Um, whereas Cassandra may be completely different and much more higher performance in certain cases. What is, what's your perspective on just compare and contrast those two products simply and how far off am I? Well, they, they did get colo, kind of co-located together in this, this sphere of NoSQL for a long time. I think that was a, a big problem that we were all having was that we all got lumped into the same mess. Hey, you guys are just NoSQL, wave of hand, move on. Um, that, that really isn't the case. If you're, if you look deeply into what each database does, Mongo is a document database. It, you, you throw a JSON document at it, and then it indexes it, or you can look up certain fields inside that JSON document, which is a very different kind of database. And where Cassandra has full schema, and it is more of a transactional database, um, has a very specific data model. Um, there is very little that they, they share in common. Um, so they're very different in their use cases. And so what's interesting is you don't really see a lot of head-to-head uh, -head competitions between Mongo and Cassandra, especially if people understand their use case. And it, it just, they just don't play together in the same field. And if someone is looking at both, then they probably don't really know what their problem is. So if you look at um, key, values, key value stores versus columnar, or you look at structured versus unstructured, where would you put Cassandra into? Yeah, that's, that, that was actually probably one of the first big misconceptions is that Cassandra is a key value database. No, it is not a key value database. Um, key value is a very simple database. That would be React, for instance, that is one key, one value. That's it. Um, and then document databases are on the other side of the continuum where it's just throw a, a random amount of data. That's the schemaless <clears throat> database. And... Here you go, figure it out. <clears throat> now, where Cassandra fits is somewhat in the middle. We're a column family database, meaning that you do have a key, which is what we call partition key, but underlying that, in that one partition, you can have uh, millions of rows. You guys are gonna have to edit that out. I'm losing my voice. <laughs> Hang on, let me get some water. Get a drink real quick. Yeah, this is important. <laughs> Shit's important. <laughs> Thank you, Doubletree, for providing water. All right. All right, I'll pick it up again. So Cassandra is a, is a column family database, and that you know, we do provide schema. So if you look at the data model, it has uh, we have this thing called CQL, which is Cassandra query language. You create a table. You have a primary key. And so you have multiple columns inside of that. You can have collections inside of your data model is very outside of the key value store. So this it does look very much like SQL or something a relational database does. Where it stops is that you can't do things like joins. Um, it won't, you can't join tables, you can't do unions. Those types of operations are 
um, not allowed because of just how the data model works inside Cassandra. So it, it is unique in that regard. Not key value, not document, in the middle. And so, like, you know, the other thing I read in one of your presentations, and it was roughly, uh, you know, the data was roughly a year old and maybe even longer. So things, obviously, things are rapidly changing. Um, we see a, we, we, I saw where Cassandra really had a uh, massive gap over what you guys consider the competitors at the time in performance and scale. Um, and, you know, really everybody else seemed to flatten out or really not be able to handle that long-term, linear, massive scale. Do you see things like as these names pop up, the the Redis's, Hive, HBase, I don't know why everything's named after a couch. Somebody has to explain that to me. Uh, but <laughs> couch, Couchbase, CouchDB, all these kind of things. Do you see that gap shrinking? I mean, specifically with Redis, I saw an article that came out and I read it because it seemed relevant to me. There was Redis and then a company that started with an A and I'm blanking on them. Um, that really said, hey, we're speeding up. We're a lot faster now. And matter of fact, we're faster than Cassandra. Now, I understand that all, all results can be skewed to, you know, statistics are skewed to what you want them to say. Where do you guys see these competitors catching up as far as performance and scale? Now, I mean, be right on record. I am so anti-benchmark. And even in my own company, I abhor them. I, I just think that they're marketing fluff in, in most times. Because as an engineer you know that this is probably gamed in some way. And, it, of course, whoever sponsors it is going to look awesome, right? So let's, let's do real talk. If you compare apples to apples, you want to – Redis is amazing. I love a Redis for what it does because it's an in-memory database. And you should be fast as an in-memory database. But what you don't see is a thousand-cluster Redis cluster. <laughs> you know, so it's the wrong fit. Um, so it's, when you look at speed and performance – Yes, Cassandra is going to be super fast, and it does the way it was built. Um, but it also does, it has some scaling factors which really work well. So if you do need to have a thousand node cluster, you could do that. <laughs> and if you're doing millions and millions of writes per second, you can do that or not. Um, and it has a very consistent, persisted data model, which means on disk. So it's going to be different from the in-memory databases, which they, they exist in a different plane. So the couches the Redis, um, and you mentioned the A company, Aerospike. Aerospike, oh, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, those are in-memory workloads, and they should be faster uh, as far as, if I remember correctly, I know you guys work at EMC. Is memory faster than disk? I don't well, remember. Last time I checked, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting close, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they're basically, uh, the, the fabric is, you know, quickly going away. So uh, things moving off the fabric are speeding a lot of things up, and being able to pull things off of the local disk and, you know, swarm, you're still going to get much faster things off of uh, memory, which is, you know, why we did things like DSSD. We'll see how that turns out here in a couple of months. Well, I, I know this is a little vignette, but I, I think it's really fascinating how storage is picking up the ball and running right now. Here's your sports analogy. Um, sports ball. Sports ball. Um, we, we see this, I mean, if you go back, what, three, four years ago, the hot option was spinning disk, right? And you're looking at milliseconds of latency, 10, 15 milliseconds of latency is horrible. Now, you, you know, we have NVMe, which is out there now, which is doing a great things. You have the 3D matrix, crazy quantum storage. I mean, before you know it, storage, it will catch up with where memory is in the, in the box. And we are going to have a very different conversation at that point. Yeah, we, we just had um, somebody from Micron on a couple of episodes ago talking about 3D Crosspoint and where that's going to head. And it's going to be 
interesting for all of these things, right? Um, it's, uh, oh, yeah. dem- you know, democratizing flash so that everybody can have it at every price level. So get in there, Brent. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Patrick, to get back, you, you, you brought your, I heard the word consistent, um, multiple times. So I wanted to, to understand, um, specifically regarding Cassandra, um, you know, there's the, there's the acid compliance and there's base compliance and there's eventual consistency versus always consistent. So where does, where does Cassandra fall, um, in, in, in between those two and kind of explain to me how replication occurs across multiple nodes, across multiple sites and, um, you know, that whole model. Please do not say in two sentences or less. <laughs> that, that ain't going to happen. Um, well, all right, so the consistency model goes back again to the Dynamo paper, and that was where it was first dreamt up. And um, you'll hear that that's a, you said eventual consistency. Okay, what does that mean? I think that was probably a good way to make, make people freak out a little bit. Like, what do you mean eventual? Like next week? <laughs> no, 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 not that. But if you look at the way distributed systems work, you have to be okay with the fact that they're, because they're not connected to each other, there will be latencies involved. You know, we just talked about storage. Well, network has latency. So if you have a group of machines working together, you need to account for that. But you also need to account for failure. So I'll give you an example. Consistency level uh, is something you could tune in Cassandra. So you can say, I want consistency level of all, which means that when you have multiple replicas of your data and you try to insert something into the cluster, all three of those replicas have to say I have it and it's on disk. Um, so that there's no there's no wiggle room now for a failure. So if one of those replicas was to fail, like the server died, then when you go to insert some data at consistency level of all, it would come back and say, sorry, I can't satisfy consistency. Game over. Uh, so that that's not going to be very helpful. That that you might as well just use a single server at that point. So there's there's consistency levels in between. Um, all the way from the lowest consistency guarantee, which is a one, all the way up to uh, what I like, which is quorum. So if you have three replicas of, of your data, a quorum means 51% of those have agreed that we have committed this to the disk. So let's say that you have four servers and three replicas, a replication factor of three, and I'll get into replication in a second, but you have a replication factor of three, meaning you have three copies if you, if you insert that data at a quorum and one of those replicas was to die, just turn off, two of those will get that data. Now, when they do get that data, they will send back to the client, got it, good to go, and you've satisfied quorum. Now, what happened to that third replica? So it's, it's off. You, know, you pulled the power plug by mistake. Well, there's where the eventual consistency comes in. Now, when that server comes back online, what is your expectation? More, more or less, it's going to be, I want that to be consistent as well. Well, it's not consistent while it's coming back online. But whenever you bring it back online, it checks in with the cluster and says, I'm back. What did I miss? And uh, the nodes that were online when it went down can then pass the data to that new node or that node when it comes online. Say, this is what you've missed. So until that point that it's, on, that it's fully consistent, you are now inconsistent on that node. Now, that is... A, a normal failure mode. But you can also do reads at quorum, meaning that th- uh, two out of the three nodes have to agree that this is the consistent set of data. So as nodes are coming and going, 
then that, that, that's going to be manageable. You can do that in production now. You can have nodes disappear in production, and it won't bring you down. So um, that, that explains consistency. Um, I don't know. You guys, did I, did I cover that for you? You did. You did for <laughs> yeah. me. Okay. Yep. So the replication is, is pretty boring, but also very, uh, which is great. I, I don't, complex things fail in complex ways, right? And the way that our replication works is very elegant and simple. Um, when you insert data into a cluster, um, you, you send it to any node. So if you have those four nodes again, you can send it to one of the nodes. And that node knows, it, it has a, um, an outline of like where all the data should lie in the cluster. And so if it doesn't belong to that node, that data, then it will coordinate it to the correct node for the client. So the client doesn't even know. And so the client will say, here you go. And it will also uh, send that data to the replicas as well. So if you have a replication factor of three, that coordinator will send it to uh, three nodes at the same time, asynchronously. And based on the consistency level you set up, that's what, that's what will get um, answered back to the client. So if you say quorum, if two out of the three say got it, then it goes back to the client. And the client gets a happy, yes, it's in the, your data is now in the cluster. Um, so if that coordinator was to die, the client can just try another node in the cluster and keep going. Again, more resiliency. So this replication isn't like uh, it is, is stuck to the nodes. It's not like HDFS where there has to be three nodes. So if one node goes offline, it'll move data around. Um, the nodes are pretty sticky in the cluster until you actually remove them from the cluster itself. But <clears throat> that, that replication is very simple. Now, the cross data center is probably the best part because when that coordinator writes it locally, it also does one connection to the other data center and finds a coordinator there and then replicates it locally inside that data center. So it minimizes land traffic, but then that cons you can manage that consistency level as well. So pretty simple and it's you know it's it's elegant like i said um but it's a simple way of doing replication and it works really well so i've got consistent data uh i've got you know simple and consistent replication uh you know i'm i'm in multiple sites and i'm well protected uh so you know w what's next for the you know basically now at this point it's talking about getting things out and we saw we see a lot of things with data stacks around data modeling um, so, you know, tell us what that is and then, you know, talk a little bit more about, you know, what we're using it for and why it's necessary. Well, data modeling is, of course, critical for any database. Um, I spent a lot of my time in Oracle land doing just that. And relational data modeling was, of course, how, how many queries can I, I create? How many joins can I create to find my data? <laughs> um, Cassandra data modeling is a different exercise where you, uh, with relational data modeling, you start with your data, you build the models, and then you start, then you write your application, right? So you, you create the ERD, and then you write your application, and you go look at the ERD, and you look at all the, how, to, how many joins you do. Cassandra's reverse, you look at your application. So Cassandra's an application database. So you look at what your application needs, what queries it needs, and then you model around those. So application first, then you build your model, then the data is. So it's reverse of what relational is. That could be a bit of a challenge if you've come from relational, because that's not what you expected to see. But uh, it does fit when you look at being an application database. It's not a general purpose database like a relational. Relational is very, very general purpose, right? You can just model out your data, and I'm going to do a data warehouse or an application or what have you. 
But Cassandra, because it's built around applications, is you start with that application, you build your queries. Now, those what key components of the the data model are? Um, is it an efficient query? Will it take a lot of work for me to get that data? Is it very efficient? Um, will I create hotspots in my in my data center? For instance, am I, like am I just inserting it into one partition key instead of multiple partition keys? Um, little things like that, but. Most most of the work that we do is we have a, a website, Datastacks Academy, that goes through a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good courseware free online about data modeling. If you spend a few hours learning how to data model properly on Cassandra, the rest of your experience with Cassandra will be amazing. And then reading uh, one of the blogs, I, I saw the term denormalizing data, so comparing how Again, the difference between Cassandra and the traditional relational kind of world, what does denormalizing mean? So denormalizing is actually something I did quite a bit in the relational world. So uh, the original point of relational models were, was to minimize how much data you store. So if you think about 1970s, how much did a disk cost? Um, a lot. <laughs> More than I'd want to pay for it. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for um, like a megabyte disk, right? So minimizing how much data you stored was really the very important thing with relational. Um, denormalizing, so denormalizing takes this concept where you may have to join multiple tables to get your data in a relational database. So employee table, the department table, I need to join those together to find out which employee belongs to which department. Um, denormalizing means taking, or normalizing uh, that's the normalization process. Denormalizing means you now co-locate that data on the same row. So an employee record will also have a field for department instead of being in a different table. And we, like I said, we did that in relational databases. You're trying to put all your data in a single row, so when you ask for it, you get it all in one shot. Okay, that I mean that makes perfect sense, and um, obviously we can look up more about that. So. Um, tell us, you know, what, what's new in Cassandra land? Like somebody who's going to pick up, they, they know what 2.2 was or whatever. Uh, we're on 3.2 now. What, what's really changed over the last year or so? The big change, and this is Cassandra 3.0, 3.x, is a storage engine change. And that, of course, that's a really tough one to do. Um, Cassandra is trying to, there's, there's, specific milestones in Cassandra's life and um, you look at the 0.6 to 0.7 transition was when we put schema online. No more schema XML file. Yay! Uh, 1.2 is when CQL was introduced, CQL3. Um, changed the data model forever. Um, so this 3.x change is, is really big because the, the data model, the storage model before was based on thrift which was the RPC framework that that's how you communicated with Cassandra. Um, it was pretty much the same, very similar storage format since point one. And so it didn't fit with the modern idea of where Cassandra could head to. It was getting in the way. So that was a big decision. It was like one of those things, well, this is going to hurt. Let's do it. And <clears throat> so if you look at uh, the, there was a, if you followed JIRA, 8099 was the JIRA. And that one was um, about changing out the storage engine to be more efficient with CQL. Um, and there's a host of things that go with that. Like, for instance, materialized views are now available in Cassandra. Um, 
and some of the architecture changes for more performance, I, I would expect to see an ex a significant performance increase over the next few versions of Cassandra. Okay. So uh, as we kind of wrap this up then, Patrick, um, obviously Datastax is using an open source project uh, and commoditizing it and, and making money. Um, if you... I think you may, may have said something like this. Companies uh, with a stake in technology that are not contributing to OSS are at a distinct competitive disadvantage. Um, was that, in fact, a statement that you made? That was, yep. Okay. Yeah, awesome. you, you found that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about how Datastax is giving, um, giving back to the community. Well, uh, uh, my team, for instance, you know, we're we're very focused on the open source side of things. We work with we work with non Datastax users of Cassandra and Datastax users of Cassandra. We we really don't draw a line. Uh, we won't say, well, you're not a customer. I can't talk to you. We talk to everybody. Um, in addition, we have we have a lot of development that we do. Um, we have uh, committers that work at Datastax that work full time on Cassandra. We contribute documentation. We do training, free training for Cassandra. So I, if anyone was to question our, our dedication to the community at large, I think they would be really barking up the wrong tree because we, we put a significant amount of money. Our Cassandra Summit last year was completely free. We didn't charge for that. And we had 3,500 people show up for that. Wow. Um, so... I, I can't promise it'll always be free, but that was an important part of the community. I mean, that was, it was a party for the community, is getting everyone together. That's um, a material outlay of cash and real resources. So we we are dedicated to the community. It's a core part of our beliefs. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Just going to the Apache page, Datastax is all over that thing. I mean, it's practically littered with your name with data stacks it's pretty cool to see that and i think that speaks volumes for for what you guys are doing for the community and for the project as a whole so well, we have to be I careful too we don't we can't we can't be the owners and i think that's what i really try to um i try to foster in the community is uh, we're not the owners here please participate um we're, we don't want to be the sole source of information or knowledge it is a community effort so if you look at committers, we have committers at Apple, we have committers at a lot of places. Um, we have uh, committers at Spotify. I mean, there's um, committers that exist in the world that um, are outside of data stacks, and that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah, and speaking of Spotify, they came and uh, presented to something I saw on there. Their data is so much fun uh, to look at, you know, to, to see the relationships and how you can see things. Um, they have a great story about... Uh, um, that uh, Steven Tyler song from Armageddon and when it pops up and what it was related to and everybody thought it was Valentine's and it turns out it was actually related to real asteroids in the news. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so, so it's, so it's a cool data. Uh, great customer, great customer of a Cassandra and also just really cool stuff. Yeah. And, and then they're, and they're great community members. Um, Spotify has always been a great community member and they participated in with, 
open arms. I mean, they, they're very open about what they do. I love what Spotify does for the Cassandra community. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's fantastic to see people open, as you mentioned, right? People like Walmart and Bank of America and others who are using op open source projects to benefit their business, uh, but then closing it down because of quote unquote IP and all this other stuff. It's just, it makes no sense. And it's, uh, it, it, can you imagine the benefit you could have from Walmart's investments in what they're doing to what other people could leverage and use it for their own benefit? Um, you know. Have you ever heard of Apple ever talking at a conference? Um, not, not offhand. I'm not, no. not, not unless it's their conference. No, exactly. And they <laughs> have spoken at two Cassandra conferences. Interesting. So, and this is, this is a very, yeah, I think this is very fascinating because they've made such a, I think a very strong dedication to the community and the open sourceness of this, that they've, they've taken this huge leap of faith and they've picked Apache Cassandra to make that leap with. Well, it's good that they're learning. I mean, seeing them open source some of their stuff as well as a, as a, as a learning opportunity for them. So maybe they'll, maybe these experiments will turn out to be something. So I, hope so. I did yeah. have, we're, uh, we're, we're about to have to run out of time. I know you've got meetings and very important customers to get to. Um, I was curious while we were researching, you know, you've seen all these stacks, right? The lamp stack, elk stack, mean stack, which is not a very nice name. Um, <laughs> one of the things I found was the smack stack, stack which is really interesting to me, right? So spark, <laughs> I love it. You, know, you got to talk, you got to talk about it. I'm smack. talking about this tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> That's, well, great. So spark, Mesos, which I'm a big fan of, uh, Aka, Aka, which I don't know what it is. Cassandra, obviously relevant. And then Kafka. What just really quickly, if you can, what is this stack? Because it sounds really interesting. It's it's one of those things that comes together, uh, and it has come together over time because this is what people are trying to accomplish in mass. So Cassandra is a component of a larger thing, right? So so, but if you look at all of those those individual pieces that you talked about together, what they're putting together is is really like a data pipeline. So you have organization of data with Kafka, um, you have processing with Spark and Aka, and you have storage with Cassandra. And then to orchestrate and manage the resources, you have Mesos. Really cool. Yeah, really cool it, 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 it comes together really neatly. And so it, what's nice about it is it, as an engineer just starting into this world and looking at data pipelines, it's a one less wheel you have to figure out if it's round or not. That's and that's awesome. I think it's my. I think it's coming to a lab near me soon. Um, I've already been starting to learn on Mesos because of what EMC Code's starting to do with Mesos and our plugins. Right. Uh, you know, towards storage. So one of the things I'm learning now, as we, I start to learn Cassandra and some of those other things from a deeper level, uh, I'm headed down this smack stack. Oh so yeah, I'm excited. So we got to go. You've got to go. We really appreciate it. Um, again, so where where can everybody find you? Right. Uh, one of the things I love is. Everywhere I see you, it says, how can I help you? Um, I think that's so amazing and it's so opening. It's, you know, it's friendly to people and you're obviously very friendly to us. You didn't know me from Adam and uh, responded quickly and, you know, joined us pretty quickly on the podcast. So how can other people find you? Well, let's see. Easiest thing is probably Twitter, um, at Patrick McFadden, um, my full name on, on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Stack Overflow. Um, I'm... I'm just out there. I, I'm, I'm in every single strata. I'm at there. Um, Cassandra summits on YouTube. You can Google me. I'm on YouTube. Send me an email, Patrick at Datastacks. Yes, I just gave my email. Um, I I prefer to talk to people. I don't want to sit behind a desk. So yeah, that's fantastic. And I did want to tell everybody 
Um, I noticed that Datastax not only has a Cassandra certification, um, but obviously you mentioned those learning classes, those free learning classes a couple of times. Datastax so, Academy, right? Datastax Academy. I think that's a fantastic resource for the community and anybody who's, you know, junior level all the way up to, you know, wherever they want to get to as far as certified. Um, I noticed comments on Reddit about from people on your team mentioning that there are vendors at Cassandra summits and things like that saying, if somebody passes that test, I want to hire them because we need people that bad. We see a lot of certs that don't mean much. Um, that one may mean something, at least in the short term, to show who really has relevant skills. Um, so pretty, pretty, I hope so. Yeah. Pretty I, new product. It's needed. I mean, I, I, I talk to teams all the time. They're like, man, do you know any Cassandra people? No, but I'm making some. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. So, um, again, you know, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. It's been great getting to know you guys and hopefully we can do it again sometime. You're always welcome. So for everybody else, again, you know, get social with us, get social with Patrick too, you know, bug him. He, uh, all hours of the night, he loves tweets in the middle of the night. So, uh, you know, tweet us, uh, you know, tweet us, me, me and Brent, you know, the, the hot aisle. Get social with us. Tell us what you want to hear. Make fun of us. Uh, you know, tell Brent to change his clothes. Whatever it is we need to do, uh, let's get that done. Uh, and again, on behalf of the Hot Owl, I'm Brian Carpenter. And I'm Brent Piatti. And Patrick, again, thanks for joining us.